0: Welcome back to Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. We're going to move on to part two of our journal club and we're going to cover a very exciting topic now, which is the use of PE response teams in the care of high risk complicated pulmonary embolisms. And we've got one of the forefront clinicians who has helped to develop this protocol at Westmead hospital, Dr. Jimmy Chen, who's one of the senior respiratory physicians here. And we're very fortunate to have Dr. Kevin Lai, who's also an ED contributor to that protocol development at Westmead um, to provide some of their perspectives on the management of these complex patients. Chen, if you'd like to take it away.
1: Thanks very much for that intro. A few years ago, uh, Kevin and I, uh, amongst um, other clinicians in the hospital, decided that one of the areas where we were quite deficient was the management of acute high-risk pulmonary embolism. And there were models at that stage that had early results regarding uh, good outcomes from peer response teams internationally. First place to establish a peer response team was in Massachusetts, and they reported their findings in 2015. So I came back from a conference in 2015 and from then we started having discussions about for the formation of a PE response team. Kevin and I had been working a bit more on this uh, for a few years before that we'd been developing a local PE model. So Kevin and I had been involved in writing our local PE guidelines prior to that but after the introduction overseas of PE response teams we decided that this was a good initiative so in 2016, we started putting a small group together and it took us two years to actually form the PE response team. So initially it was Kevin, myself, Ash Banerjee from ICU, Luke Baker from interventional radiology, Jenny Kono from hematology and Mauro Vicaretti from vascular surgery. And between us, we decided that it was a good initiative. It took us about 18 months to come up with all the right protocols and proformas reviewing all the literature and the structure of the team. And finally, we got clinical governance uh, endorsements to formally form the peer response team in 2018. So it took a few years to get up and running, but it's been running since then. And uh, since then, we've managed close to 80 peer response team patients now. The patients in whom we call a peer response team call four are the patients with a high or intermediate risk pulmonary embolism. We used to call these massive and submassive PEs but there's a really good reason why we don't call them massive and submassive PEs anymore and I can go into that in a little bit more detail later on. We've been calling PE response team multidisciplinary management for patients now for these two particular groups high risk and intermediate risk and the outcomes I can show you a bit later on are all actually quite promising compared to the international literature we're actually doing quite well. First of all, today, I've got a journal article that we can go through. I've highlighted some salient points from it. And I think it's particularly relevant to emergency and critical care medicine because the groups of patients they look at in this article are patients who have pulmonary embolism-related cardiac arrest. And we've actually seen some of those here. These are the most severe patients that you'll meet. And often the question is, what the hell do we do about them? This is, in many cases, uncharted territory. And we've had a few cases where we've used VA ECMO here. The importance of moving away from massive and submassive PE is these terms don't confer what the survival is. And based on the current guidelines, it also doesn't convert guideline-based management plans for them. Traditionally, massive and submassive were used to describe the appearance on CT. If you had uh, two major low bar arteries involved or one major low bar artery, which with complete occlusion, that used to be called massive, anything less than that was submassive. We know now that the appearance is very deceptive and the appearance of what a CT looks like, how big the clot burden looks and also where it's distributed often has no bearance on what the outcomes are for patients. The current definitions of high and intermediate risk, high risk is anyone with hemodynamic instability or hemodynamic collapse. And the most recent European Respiratory Society and European Cardiology Society guidelines have made us another step and amended their criteria and they've clearly defined what hemodynamic instability means. So they give you a, a list of criteria about what it means. Essentially, it's someone who's got a systolic of less than 90 millimeters of mercury for more than 15 minutes, plus a drop in 30 from a previously known documented systolic or if they've got hemodynamic collapse. There's a few other minor factors there that you can use, but they have really clearly defined at this time. In the 2014 European guidelines, they commented on uh, a hypotension for more than 15 minutes, but it was less clearly defined than it is now. So in the most recent guidelines from 2019, they've really clearly defined what a high-risk PE is. And that's and defined... an
2: inotrope uh, requirement. As
1: well. Yeah, inotrope requirement too, to sustain their blood pressure up to 90 systolic. So there has been a real change in terms of defining it. And that definition... Does lead to more information and data about what their outcomes are and what you should do for managing them. So, we do know that in this group, who's defined as high risk, the risk of mortality is quite high. Usually it varies between about 25 and 50%, but some data series have said that the mortality for this group can be up as high as 90%. But what, from what we've seen from most of the large studies looking at PE, mortality for these patients is between 25 and 50%.
2: And for the high risk ones, is there a separate classification for the ones that arrest with a massive PE?
1: No, there's no further classification on them. The ones that do arrest are just defined as, again, having hemodynamic collapse. In our current pathway, for the ones that arrest, there is a flow sheet in our current document in terms of what you do for emergency thrombolysis. So we've accounted for that with a plan for emergency thrombolysis there. Where it does get tricky is the intermediate group. And the intermediate group is uh, more tricky because there's two subdivisions. There's intermediate high risk and intermediate low risk. The intermediate high risk are defined uh, by radiological signs of RV strain. And you can define that both on CT and on echo. So on CT, you get an enlarged RV to LV ratio of greater than 0.9. And on ECHO, it's if you see septal flattening or a McConnell sign or acute changes in RV pressures. And in fact, on the most recent European guidelines, they've got uh, about six or seven ECHO-based criteria with pictures on on what you should look for. But again, that's something I'm happy to distribute because that's a really good document. So the intermediate high risk is defined by radiological changes of RV strain plus evidence of cellular damage. So you've got a troponin rise or increase in pro BMP. Mm -hmm. So if both of those are positive, then they get classified into intermediate high risk. And the difference with this group is that there are recommendations to reperfuse them if they're hemodynamically unstable. So if uh, they're hemodynamically unstable or if they develop clinical instability, like they've got low SATs, they're persistently tachycardic, they just don't look good from the end of the bed. They desaturate the minute they turn in bed. They're the ones that you think about reperfusing. Reperfusion, like with a high-risk group, would involve either systemic thrombolysis, reduced dose systemic thrombolysis, catheter-based thrombolysis, or even suction thrombectomy. There's more options for the intermediate high-risk group. The intermediate low-risk group, their mortality rates are much, much lower. If you look at their mortality rates for the intermediate low-risk group, they're well less than 10%. So for this group, it's deemed that they're probably suitable just for anticoagulation. However, there are some patients in this group who you monitor for a few days and they do shift from intermediate low to intermediate high. Suddenly they've got clot progression or they've broken off more uh, proximal free-floating clot from their hip and that's uh, given them another clot. So some of these patients may move on to go into the intermediate high-risk group and sometimes they can go into the high-risk group too. But as a general rule for the intermediate low risk group, these are patients that can get away with anticoagulation.
0: That was a really clear explanation. I think from an ED perspective, uh, certainly as a senior clinician on the floor, I'm always looking to answer specific questions when I'm reviewing a PE patient, for example, and a lot of that is gonna be, do they need emergent reperfusion therapy and do they need admission versus discharge and are they high risk or low risk? understanding the perspective behind the development of some of these terms is really key to that because it helps us guide our investigations and obviously helps us facilitate a more coherent conversation with the inpatient services Mm -hmm. as well. So thanks for explaining that. That was really good, actually.
1: And it's useful if we all start talking in the same language as well. Yeah, it is very important.
3: I would highly recommend for all of us in the ED to read this very well-written article, wouldn't you, Jimmy?
1: Yeah, the uh, European Cardiology Society guidelines are very, very clearly written.
3: The table of classification in there is going to be well referred to in many meetings to come in the future, in your exams. It's a change of language, potentially evolving, changing culture. But also the other thing, it's not just for the reperfusion for um, decisions for the high risks PEs. Potentially, I think it's also for the low risk PE discharge streams, which we don't do that much in Australia, but certainly is done a lot in other countries such as Canada, would you think?
1: I think if you've got a patient that you identify as low risk, they can be managed either as an outpatient or inpatient. It gives you options when they're low risk. And particularly since we've got now, and we do know that in the management of low risk PE, um, NOACs have really come into play in the last couple of years, and it's a very safe option for managing patients. For the really high risk group, some of these patients have sun and hemodynamic collapse, and they may need inotropic support, And the question is, what is the role of VA ECMO here in patients that you just can't maintain oxygenation on? And this is a systematic review looking at a number of articles for patients who have undergone VA ECMO who've had high-risk pulmonary emboli. In this study, they still define it as massive pulmonary embolism, but essentially they're talking about the high-risk group. So this is the study that was published last year, and they did a PubMed database search. Um, and use a Cochrane review uh, criteria to review it. A massive PE or a high risk PE is defined as acute PE with sustained hypotension with a blood pressure of less than 90 millimetres systolic or a drop greater than 40 millimetres for at least 15 minutes. These are slightly different from the European guidelines and you'll find that the European and the American guidelines are slightly different. And the other place that has released new guidelines out is the PE consortium in the States. So our peer response team joined the PE consortium a few years ago. um, And that's a really good reference. If you want a really good reference for anything PE related, you can join as just an email notification member. Um, If you look up PE consortium, they're based on the East coast of the United States. We also have a meeting every year to go through the latest and greatest in terms of developments for PE management. And they've got their own set of guidelines, which is separate to the American college of chess physicians. And I think the PE consortium guidelines are much more up-to-date and much more reflective of what we're doing now. So the requirements for vasopressor support that define these patients as well that we talked about before, and they do account for around about 10% of patients that present with pulmonary embolism. So VA ECMO is something that hasn't been used much, but increasingly for cases where there are patients with cardiogenic shock and patients with an arrest, particularly patients who just can't oxygenate anymore, Um, it's been used as a bridge to therapy or bridge to recovery. And this systematic review looks at cases, to the outcomes for these patients. So VA ECMO and massive PE-related cardiac arrest can unload the right ventricle and prevent subsequent cardiac arrest by rapidly establishing reperfusion and, and tissue oxygenation. The reason why patients die with PE is not primarily due to hypoxemia it's acutely due to right heart and right right ventricular failure. When you've got a big enough clot burden in the lungs, there's just no flow through the lungs to get back into the left heart. But the biggest impact is on the right ventricle. The PA pressure rises from normal uh, to acutely above 15 millimeters of mercury. And once you get to a right ventricular pressure greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, the RV can't sustain its function the pressure inside the ventricle is higher than the collapsing pressure for the arterioles within the myocardial wall. So the right ventricular myocardium starts to undergo ischemia. And that's the reason why we see TROP rises and also pro bmp increases in patients with high-risk PE or acute PE. And the reason why the patients die is usually due to have acute RV failure. And that happens way before they get problems with hypoxemia. So giving them VA ECMO really unloads that right ventricle and also establishes reperfusion. You get, you know, two effects for the price of one. The American Heart Association has a fairly high level of evidence and the European Society of Cardiology has an even higher level of evidence to recommend the use of systemic thrombolytic uh, therapy for high risk PE. So thrombolysis is the gold standard for high risk PE. So if you've got someone who's acutely crashing in front of you and you don't know what to do, the first thing to do is to use that flow chart that you've got in ED, to give them that rapid uh, infusion protocol. And usually it's 50 milligrams of alteplase. If they're really unwell and they're just crashing in front of your eyes, you can't get a blood pressure at all, there's no output. You just give them the whole 50 in one hit. But if they're just dropped their blood pressure, they've just dropped it to below 90 millimeter systolic for about 15 minutes, the systolic's around 70, 80. They're looking crook, they're needing some metaraminol, but not completely crashing yet. You've got time to give them reduced-dose thrombolysis, and the protocol is 10 milligrams as a bolus up front, followed by 40 milligrams over the next hour. So there are your two sort of protocols for really acute or slightly subacute presentations. So this is consistent with the current guidelines that suggest systemic thrombolysis for these high-risk patients. The updated guidelines from 2019, these are the ones we talked about that are really quite good suggest considering VA ECMO for high-risk PE patients. And they do have a certain, you know, relatively high level of uh, evidence to support this. And of course, it's in the appropriate clinical setting. You can't do it at centres that don't offer ECMO. Um, It should be done at a centre with experience in managing patients on ECMO with an ECMO team available. So they did their literature review by looking at all the articles and abstracts that were considered eligible for inclusion if they were described as very specific in the clinical scenario of defining high-risk or massive PE with cardiac arrest managed with VA ECMO and also for articles that reported patient survival statistics because it's no use looking at this data if you don't know what the survival is. All their dates of publication were prior to a certain search date were included and they looked at about 77 studies essentially and whittled them all down to a select few that I want to look at. So on the top left-hand corner, we have the number of patients who had systemic thrombolysis prior to VA ECMO and proportion of patients with no systemic thrombolysis prior to cannulation. Don't be concerned about the height of either column. They're just the absolute numbers of patients. What you want to look at is the grey versus the black. So the black is overall patients and the grey is the ones that survived. So the higher the portion of grey in that column, the higher the survival. So in that top left-hand graph, they compared patients who had systemic thrombolysis before VA ECMO and no systemic thrombolysis after VA ECMO. And if you look at the p-value, it's not significant. So there were no significant differences in mortality outcomes between the groups. So what that tells me is the majority of patients who had a VA ECMO after thrombolysis did survive. And when they averaged out these two groups, about 67% of patients who had VA ECMO, either with or without thrombolysis, still survived. And whether or not they had thrombolysis didn't affect their survival rate. Now, the top right-hand graph is a bit more interesting. This is where age has a significant difference in survival. They found that no matter if you had ECMO or not, The biggest difference was age greater than 65 or age less than 65. If you're age greater than 65, your chance of overall survival was a lot lower. If age was less than 65, your chance of survival with VA ECMO, if you did have hemodynamic collapse, was pretty high. Okay. So age was the biggest factor. And this is interesting because this is consistent with all the other published guideline about high risk and intermediate risk PE. The biggest risk group is to those age greater than 65. The higher risk of intracerebral bleeding as well, interestingly enough, in thrombolysis is also to the age group greater than 65 as well. So this is the age group to be wary of. In the bottom left-hand graph, they looked at patients who had PE as the primary reason for admission versus PE not their primary reason. So, you may have someone coming with a diabetic foot or they come in with GI issue and they had PE found subsequently after their admission. They found that there was no difference in survivability, whether or not PE was your primary diagnosis or not. So, there's no significant difference if you needed ECMO. So, if you needed ECMO, it didn't matter what comorbidities you came into hospital with the survivability was about the same. In the bottom right-hand graph, there was a real difference in what happens with CPR. And this is quite interesting for you guys in ED. So on the bottom right-hand graph, you've got on the left-hand side column, the patients cannulated during CPR, and then you've got the patients cannulated after return of spontaneous uh, circulation. So the patients who were cannulated after the return of spontaneous circulation, the proportion of those patients who survived was way higher than the patients who were cannulated during CPR. And that may have been because of practical, mechanical issues during CPR. Can
2: I offer a comment here? Yeah. Cannulated during CPR, well, I guess there's a, a timing element If you get ROSC, the patient has survived the test. Of course, they're going to do much better if they get ROSC, but also there's a selection point. If you do get the patient back, you're going to look at them and say, okay, well, we got them back. I'm more likely to cannulate this patient as opposed to this patient's been down for 40 minutes. They've had 40 minutes of low flow time. Even if we cannulate this patient, we're probably not going to have a meaningful outcome. Therefore, I'm not going to cannulate the patient. So the mortality rate is higher. Yeah.
1: So what this would tell me in practice is that the patient I should be considering via ECMO are the ones who survive CPR and have spontaneous circulation return. Whereas those that don't, the chance of, you know, they've got a, they they still survive, but their chances are lower. And this is probably more about timing of considering ECMO and that after ROSC is probably better than before.
2: Yes, Uh, Yes, for lots of reasons. (laughs) Um,
1: But I think that's supported by some literature now doesn't mean you can't do it because out of the ones you do it on, roughly two-thirds of those will survive, but certainly not compared to after ROSC. Yeah. It's interesting seeing this data, I guess, makes it
0: like really obvious why you need a PERT team because these decisions are complicated. I mean, you've still got two-thirds of people who are cannulated during CPR surviving. That's not an insignificant survival rate. If you look at cardiac arrest objectively and you've now got an intervention that could potentially confer a survival benefit to two thirds of those patients. I mean, how many of those survived with a tangible neurological outcome, et cetera, et cetera, different questions that are not answered by that graph. I can imagine the complexities of the decision-making that occurs.
1: And I think it brings to mind why these teams exist. And I think that's the beauty of having the PE response team is um, Kevin and I have been on multiple pert calls over the last two years and having um, all the specialists discussing this in one spot really brings an element of consensus and brings everyone with their experience and knowledge to the table. So I think it's really useful. And we've had quite a number of PERT calls now where we've actually called the ECMO team following our PERT and said, look, this is a patient we think may or may not need support, but we'd like to give you the heads up. They'll either need support perithrombolysis with systemic thrombolysis, or even when they're uh, following a catheter-directed Procedure. If a cathode-directed procedure fails, there may be someone who's a candidate, go to ICU. So I think having the team ready to discuss these issues is really quite handy. And the other good thing about having the P response team is that we don't necessarily just have one discussion. Many times we'll reconvene after a certain timeframe or we've reached a certain set of actions. So we'll say after we've done one, two, three, we'll reconvene. After we've got these results, we'll reconvene after the ECOS will reconvene or after the ECHO. So it's something that's quite a dynamic process. It's not static. We, the PERT team can convene whenever it needs to. And it makes decision-making like this much, much easier. It's better than doing it serially, calling one clinician at a time. At a time. No, of course. Uh, I think it just facilitates
0: those high-level conversations that often don't have robust evidence behind them but are going to be dependent on consensus and experience and clinical judgment calls that are so hard to get on a one-on-one conversation.
1: And it brings different elements of people's experience and knowledge of the evidence to the table too. Like uh, we would have a PERT call and I would know, probably list the evidence behind what our decision is for some things, but I wouldn't know the latest guidelines for NOAC use in hyper obese patients that Jenny Kerner would know or the latest uh, RESUS protocols that Kevin would know or uh, the pros and cons of IVC filter insertion in certain clinical patient populations that Moravikuretti would...
3: Or the logistics of transferring a patient from from Blacktown or Auburn to Westmead would include. My view on ECMO for PE, I think, as Jimmy said, this is an extra option for reperfusion for patients. And it's very extreme. But, you know, in a center that we have... Uh, this provides an extra option for patients. However, I do want to caution: just like therapeutic hypothermia, the Rivers protocol for sepsis, and so on, we need to be careful about uh, what we're doing. I'm all for researching and uh, looking forward at new modalities to treat patients, but we just need to be careful with a, a high-stake, you know, very involved, potentially high complications procedures such as ECMO. I wonder what you could think, Jimmy, of uh, this paper. I mean, it's a retrospective paper. Systematic review um, is as good as all the evidence is put together. Certainly we think there'll be some bias and people will publish positive results more than negative results. And uh, to me, a survival rate of 61%, you know, PE arrest mortality used to be more than 90% in the past. It is quite astonishing. So uh, I'd be a bit careful about interpreting that for me.
1: So I think the biggest issue is the fact that it's all retrospective and there's no prospective data here. And whenever you go to look at retrospective data, there's a lot of things that you can't get from the information. And sometimes there are inherent falsehoods. that are just accidents um, in the medical record and you pick those up. That is a, a bit of a caution. I think what this paper tells me is that it tells me the VA ECMO is an option. It may not necessarily be always the best or the ideal option to use. And this would only apply to the very pointy end of patients. So, if you're looking at about 8 to 10% of patients who have a high risk PE that come into hospital, I think out of that 8 to 10% overall, I reckon only 1 to 2% of patients, probably 1% of patients would be eligible for this type of treatment. So, you
2: think the arrest, peri arrest? Yeah,
1: I think out of this cohort of 75 that we had, we probably only had two.
2: Has there been any evidence come through with PE arrests in the eCPR data we've been collecting?
1: I mean,
0: that's a separate indication altogether. So we were obviously running that trial for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and instituting... ECMO CPR for those patients early on in their clinical course. And there's been demonstrations there that for certain pa- subset population patients, interestingly, age is also a, a very big discriminator there. Um, but for those patients, often you're looking at shockable rhythms. And look, yes, there's obviously diagnosis of etiology of cardiac arrest based off rhythm alone is you know speculative at <laughs> okay. best, but you're going to look at PEA and asystolic arrests for a lot of these patients, which often would preclude them from that particular trial, which is the one that we're running at the moment. In the context of arrest in general, I think there's a lot of objective data that suggests that patients with long, with low flow times and sort of other poor prognostic factors might have poor outcomes to begin with. And oftentimes, diagnosing a PE intra-arrest is probably more challenging than some of the literature would suggest, just from a pragmatic point of view. So I, I don't really know if you can extrapolate that data to this. That's why I was so astounded by the numbers. And I think you're right. I think there's going to be a very few number of patients. And the important takeaway from this is that it is a thing that you should be considering in a particular subset of patients.
2: I'm definitely not a hater of ECMO. I'm a fan. I think it definitely has a role. I don't think this study has proven a great deal to me numbers wise. In terms of the quote unquote studies they've included, we don't know what proportion of abstracts they've used. Anyone can put anything you want in an abstract. You don't have to verify your data to put in an abstract. So therefore, I I think that's really suspect. I think there are some other things about this that has been written kind of badly. When they mention the numbers of things, they'll say about 700 patients. I'm like, you can be specific about this, but you've chosen repeatedly not to be. And why is that not? In their algorithm they've included, they've said They've excluded articles, but they haven't mentioned the fact they're using abstracts. And I think they've hidden the fact of what proportion of abstracts they've done. I think some of their graphs could have included percentage points. So what proportion of your age less than 65 survived with ECMO, those kinds of things. There were just some things which were a little bit shoddy about this. That said, I think it's a really interesting area of growth. They just haven't gotten over the bar.
1: What you really need is a a prospective trial moving ahead. Because the numbers coming through are so low, they're always going to get difficulties with getting the numbers.
2: Absolutely.
1: The other thing that this paper doesn't tell you is survivability is pretty black and white. It doesn't tell you what disability they're left with. Yeah, it doesn't Um, mention
2: neurological outcome. Yeah, correct. It did say that the six people, I think it was, that had major bleeds post-thrombolysis, didn't die from it, but it didn't really go into yeah. any
1: detail the, about The it. overall numbers for bleeding seem to be very low from yes. my experience. I mean, you'd get at least some bleeding from cannula or insertion sites, is our experience even from ECOS. Yeah. But the numbers that they had for bleeding complications was awfully low here. And I think that's just the deficiencies of the retrospective analysis, depending on the abstract or the study that you looked at, they may not have reported complications in the same way mm. or bleeding in the same way yeah. so it's, it's difficult to pick up with a paper like this but I think for us in in a practical sense uh, from my point of view if we had a peer response team call on a patient who had a prolonged arrest then the patient who I would think of considering VA ECMO for would be the ones who survived their CPR and arrest yep. who had some degree of hemodynamic stability on inotropic support who had been allocated to a bed in ICU, who had been given their three full dose of thrombolysis, but they were still in trouble with output, they're the ones I'd consider calling the ECMO team for. Yeah. But again and
2: no other major uh, contraindications, no. you know, like active malignancy.
1: Or if they're elderly with multiple comorbidities, yeah. yeah. Um, but for the younger patient who's otherwise well with not much in the way of comorbidities, that so you think the overall survival except for the PE is going to be okay, then they're the ones that you'd consider. The numbers that you consider are probably going to be very, very few. And I think in terms of the rate of the ones that we'll see, it'll probably be at most one a year or two a year Mm. at most is is my
2: guess. I've got some practical questions about putting people on VA ECMO. If you're doing CPR on someone, what's the fastest you can do VA ECMO on someone? I mean, it makes a difference with low flow time if it's going to take you 20, 25 minutes to put in your cannulas.
0: I have helped at least set up some of the eCPR protocols in, in Westmead. It can happen quickly is the bottom line. It's obviously there's so many patient factors that are going to alter the technical ability to mm-hmm. to put the line in. And so some of those factors are going to be on a patient to patient basis, like obesity. like obesity and other comorbid conditions and all those sort of things. But the whole game is to minimize the low flow time, Absolutely. as you correctly said, and if some of the ECMO physicians and perfusionists are able to do it quickly enough yeah. that I doubt going forward when this becomes slightly more mainstream for a variety of indications, I doubt the technical deficiencies is going to be the rate limiting step.
1: I really doubt it. I saw them in action two weeks ago in ICU. Yeah, <laughs> One of my Patients with severe bronchiectasis. unfortunately, he had COVID. We made a decision to put him on. He was on VV ECMO. Having said that, and pretty much once we made the decision and we had the discussions with his family, they got him on the circuit probably within half an hour of them going into the room. Mm. It was pretty quick. It's yeah. It, it's I, I didn't re- myself. I I hadn't seen them set up ECMO before, and I having seen it for the first time, I thought, wow, that's pretty slick.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I think. The perfusionists are technically
0: very skilled and only getting more proficient at cannulating hemodynamically unstable arrested patients as that becomes a treatment modality in that patient population. It is still early days in that field, but speaking to the physicians involved, uh, they don't see that being an issue is probably the only answer I can give you, not being a perfusionist myself. But I I think, I doubt the technical capabilities will be the rate-limiting step here. I think what will be the rate-limiting step is the identification of the most appropriate patient, which I don't think the evidence will ever truly give us because it's gonna be so hard. It's
2: a huge consensus decision.
0: But also you're never gonna get the power to tell you in the 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 studies you do, unless there's some like international collaboration.
1: I mean, in this study, they had 301 patients in my mind, that's really not enough patients to say definitively this is the thing to do. But what it tells me is that it's an option for patients in whom you think their survivability is going to be... I might present some of our local data if you want. This is a flow diagram that Bristy Roy created, so I didn't have to thank Bristy for that. So the way that we had a PERT call for patients is... If a patient was identified as having a high or intermediate risk PE, then someone from the ward or ED would call the physician on call. The respiratory physician on call would then call the PERP moderator. They'd be me or someone else filling in for me if I was away or on leave. And the PERP moderator's role would be to assemble the PE response team. And that would be Kevin or his delegate from ED. It'd be a hematologist, an interventional radiologist, and care- the intensive care person on call as a minimum. And to start the per- process we need four people from four specialties before we start discussing the patient
2: and i'm imagining it's like an avengers assemble everyone shows up in spandex suits
1: <laughs> oh it's, it's actually a bit less exciting than that yeah you, you dial in and you hear this beat him and this little beep on there and you know someone else has dialed in so i How usually I say kevin is that you <laughs> or i say is that can you tell me who's dialed in i know that someone's just dialed in you'll have to tell me who you are it'd be a lot easier if we had some sort of video conference, conference. but It's just impossible to set up. So we've got a conference call line that we use and that's our main way of communicating with each other. So once the PE response team is assembled, then we discuss the patient and identify them as high intermediate or intermediate low risk. And as you can see, there's different locations that refer patients for the PE response team. ED was the majority. The ward was about a quarter of them, and the rest came from one of the high dependency or monitored units either ICU or B5B.
2: Do you ever get referrals from outside of the hospital, saying network calls, saying we've got a patient with a high-risk PE that we want to send to you?
1: Yeah, Kevin and I have discussed this before. We've had a few from Auburn and Blacktown, but the PE response teams internationally have only been designed to operate within a facility, and it's not designed to be a network-wide because every hospital has different procedures, different pathways. And when you're transferring patients from all across the city into one place, it just doesn't work. Um, it's not worked overseas. It may pose a higher mortality risk to patients if you're transferring unstable patients. And then I recently got onto a webinar with the American P Consortium to discuss this very issue that they had um, a session just called patient to transfer or not to transfer in the setting of P response team. The overall consensus was if you've got a patient who's relatively stable, who you want a procedure further down the track as a rescue, then that may be reasonable. But for someone who acutely presents, you're managing for a high or intermediate risk PE, you should manage them to the best of what's available in your local facility without transferring them from a safety perspective. So that's the overwhelming consensus from overseas. We've had a lot of pressure at Westmead as an institution, as a PERT team, where I've had calls from the South Coast, from Wollongong, from St. George, from Concord, from Nepean about accepting a patient for our peer response team to manage. And I've just had to say, well, that's not really the way our peer response team operates. It's a facility team. It's not a statewide team. And I've given advice in terms of what they can do locally.
3: I know, you had a good thing when people from from other places calling you. I guess the other thing is for them to think about Setting up their own per team.
0: Yeah. I guess it just highlights some of the challenges that you face as an individual trying to make these decisions, and then once again just demonstrates the importance of that consensus nature of conversation that happens.
1: So, out of our cohort that we've seen, um, this is a slightly older data. We had 52 patients in the intermediate high risk group, few more in the high risk group. But if you look at the proportion, about 21% were high risk PE. were intermediate high and 21% were intermediate low risk when we ended up restratifying them with the peer response team. This is just a table uh, in terms of what we did both before and after the PERT team was formed. So we looked at a few numbers of patients in the 12 months before we formed the PERT. About 25% of them had a central or or saddle. 75% of them had a more peripheral or segmental pulmonary embolism see the numbers for following the PERT, we identified that the majority of them had a central or saddle PE, about 71%, about 28% had a peripheral. The reason why the numbers are so different, I think it's because that highlights the difficulty with retrospective review. When we looked at the 12 months of data for all the DRGs for PE, I don't think we captured all the patients with PE. It's an eternal frustration. Yeah.
0: Because the heterogeneity with which diagnoses are entered into the clerical system Correct. really just determines what you can pick up.
1: Exactly. So I think what we looked at in the medical record for 12 months before we formed the PERT was not a reflection of what was really going on at all. Whereas what we're, what we're seeing now is actually a true reflection of the pattern that we're seeing. So in terms of before and after we formed the peer response team, we were much more compliant with uh, investigations that should be done according to the European society of cardiology guidelines. <laughs> so a transthoracic echo was done 88% of the time following uh, PERT. Droponin was done 98% of the time, which is tremendous. And a lot of them had TT evidence of right heart strain. A simplified period, uh, severity index score was done in the majority of patients that we saw. The next table looks at a bit of data in terms of our anticoagulation uh, choice. For anyone with a PE that we talk about, we always say start anticoagulation, no matter what we plan for them. Even if you're planning on thrombolyzing someone, we would still use upfront anticoagulation once we know that there's a PE doesn't confer a a much higher risk of bleeding, even if they have systemic thrombolysis on top of that. So we gave Clexane about half of the time, 50% of the time, about 50% of the time they had heparin infusion. One patient had bivalirudin because they had uh, hits as the main reason. About 23% of patients we managed had systemic thrombolysis, 65% had catheter-directed thrombolysis, And one had clot retrieval. The numbers have changed slightly since then. Uh, Since then, I added another 20-odd patients to this group. Is
2: that because of COVID? Uh,
1: No, that's just because uh, we lagged in our data entry. So that was all. A very relatable problem. (laughs) Yes. So once I added some more on, we had a a lot more patients who had suction thrombectomy. So now we've got a cohort of about a dozen patients who've had suction thrombectomy. And I haven't completed the data analysis for this group yet, but for the patients who had systemic thrombolysis and catheter-directed thrombolysis, they both do equally as well. And I'll show you some data regarding that in the next few slides. Most patients had some sort of final anticoagulation. Um, a lot of them had enoxaparin, and some of them had warfarin, but increased. we saw as time went on, the closer we got to 2020 and beyond, more patients went home on a NOAC yeah. rather than warfarin because in 2019 was when the ESE guidelines changed and promoted more use of NOAC, So we shifted our practice in late 2019. Uh, These are the interesting results. The top left-hand graph looks at their um, absolute right ventricle dimensions for patients with high and intermediate high risk PE. And the two columns, the two sort of columns with uh, sticks on either side, are the the difference between the first and the second CT. Most of the time, the second CT was done within within the week of their first CT.
2: So, Jimmy, just for the registrars, can you tell us what a normal ratio should be in a healthy patient? The normal
1: ratio should be less than 0.9 in a healthy patient. But the first graph on the top left there is the absolute dimension and this is really big. So we're looking at RVs that are up to almost 80 millimeters in size. Wow. If you look at the top end of that. Um, so the average, um, the, the mean um, RV dimension was around about the 60 mark, which is really big, 60 millimeter RV, yeah, mm. so that's really big. And following intervention, and it, it was either systemic thrombolysis or catheter-directed thrombolysis, there was a meaningful reduction in the RV, which was statistically significant by about five millimeters. So that's the overall size reduction. And the graph below that one, the bottom left-hand graph is all the individual plots of the RV dimension before and after the intervention. So as you see, in most patients they dropped, there's one or two where they remain stable or increased. The graphs on the right-hand side, RV to LV ratio, And it's the ratio that's been taken as uh, the standard um, as the measure for improvement in hemodynamics. So if you look at big papers like Seattle 2, which looked at the effect of catheter-directed thrombolysis on improvement in hemodynamic and RV outcomes, they looked at RV-LV ratio as the main So this is your endpoint? Yeah, this is our endpoint. So as you can see, the RV-LV ratio was certainly greater than 1.5 as an average uh, on the first CT scan. Okay, and after the second CT scan, there was a meaningful reduction in the RV-LV ratio. And it's similar to what we see in overseas data, if not slightly better. Um, So there's a big reduction in the ratio. And if you look at the individual plots, that looks even more impressive when you look at the individual plots of RV-LV to ratio. Pretty much everyone had a drop in the RV-LV ratio, except for that one person down there. (laughs) Okay, who obviously did not do well. (laughs) But uh, the rest of the patients actually did quite well. And there was a meaningful reduction in RV-LV ratio, either due to systemic thrombolysis or catheter-directed thrombolysis. So I think to me, it shows that if the PE response team chooses the right treatment for them, they're going to do well. I'll just talk a bit about thrombectomy because this is something that we've been doing a bit more of lately. And uh, the typical patient that we've chosen suction thrombectomy on is the patient who's had a recent stroke or they've got a cerebral lesion or a cerebral tumour, or they've got um, a history of high-volume massive GI bleeding. And we've come across quite a number of these patients um, since we've had the peer response team. And because the consensus is they're probably okay for anticoagulation, but in no way do we want to give them any form of thrombolysis, we've chosen this as an option. So suction thrombectomy has been available, and our IR guys have been really leaders in the nation about doing this. We've probably done the most interventional procedures from a PE perspective compared to anyone else. Um, So this is where they have a catheter and they just physically go down under IR, identify the clot and suction it out. Unfortunately, the catheters that we have available at the moment are only a small, um, sort of one millimeter diameter catheters. So you can only suck the clots out quite piecemeal. There are new systems coming through the country that they've been in touch with our IR department about, which are much more efficient at removing clot. Um, There's even devices that go down, open up a little umbrella and just pull the whole thing out. But they're not available to us at the moment and not TGA approved. So the only thing we have TGA approved is these uh, more simple suction catheters. So most of what we do is uh, suction thrombectomy, mechanical suction thrombectomy. And essentially, you've got different uh, size and different shape catheters with um, a guide balloon, guide wire where you can suction clot out. And this is what it looks like when you um, suction clot out of the lungs. This is an article that highlights, you know, uh, what you would expect to see when you suction some clot out. So one of our fellows and I, uh, Alex Brennan, we've got a case series of about 12 patients that we're probably going to publish an article on at the end of this year or early next year about our local rates of success with suction thrombectomy. Um, one thing I didn't say is um, there were some more data that we've recently analyzed on our mortality data, particularly for the high-risk group. So as I told you before, for high-risk PE patients, their mortality on average is between anywhere between 25 and 50%. Um, on the latest analysis of our cohort, our mortality rate was less than 10% Yeah, wow. for high risk. That's so we must be impressive. doing okay. The other thing that I didn't talk about, which I have to reanalyze, but our length of stay decreased dramatically as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So our length of stay has decreased from uh, 13 days pre-pert to um, about eight days, eight, wow. days. That's, That's a big reduction. It's huge. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I need to do some more data analysis on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that seems to be what the case has been since we've got the PE response, because Everything happens in a parallel manner and not in a serial manner. So what used to take you know three or four days up front to organize and do, we're, we're doing within 24, 48 hours now. As a
0: senior ED physician working on the floor, it's really comforting to know that the BERT team is there to help with some of these high order decisions because mm-hmm. of A, the lack of case presentations. Like I've probably only seen one or maybe two massive PEs in my career. And so you've know,
2: probably seen more than that that have come in as out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Of course. And we don't know what it is, yeah, but yeah. yes, I, I take your point. To the point so.
0: where I would consider further interventions in those patients, uh, probably only one or two. And so I agree. I think that getting that collective experience together on the phone and having those decisions guided by a group of senior clinicians um, has been a source of great support as someone who works on the floor in the ED. And obviously seeing the literature bear out in that way as better outcomes for our patients is you know, extremely satisfying to see that we're
1: doing some good from
0: that point of view. So
1: I thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us. You're welcome. I I like talking about this topic. I think it's the one that's close to my heart. And uh, as Kevin knows, it's taken us a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears to get this up and running over the years.
0: Yeah. And Um, I mean, it's uh, great to see, once again, you know, especially hearing the perspective behind some of the difficulties or challenges setting this up, the 18 months that it took and all of the background work. I think it's important for our listeners to hear that. And then to see that perseverance borne out in real dramatic changes to clinical outcomes that are demonstrable in the evidence shows that it's sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be easy to get disheartened by the nature of the system, but it's nice to see things work out in that way.
3: That's a great talk, Jimmy, again, a couple of other points I make one, this is a 24 hour process. So the PERT is available 24 hours, anytime for the patients. And both Jimmy and I have uh, dialed in odd hours from odd places, odd countries into this call. I guess we live in digital age. It means that we're going to be available, but there is a strain, you know, people putting a lot of good work and time into this process. And uh, I guess my second point is, you know, I say again, congratulations. This is a great process, a multidisciplinary senior consultant, decision-making team that's available 24 hours. We need more of that in emergency medicine, pre care medicine. If you think about it, there are other processes that can be similar to this where many moving factors, many things that come to my mind will be trauma, you know, um, potentially other uh, stroke and so on. These can come up. So some things to think about for the future models. I guess the other thing I want to make is PE, as I said at the very beginning, is a bit of a moving, a continually moving feast from, you know, 20 years ago. Its diagnosis has moved on from BQ CTPA. We're still talking about D-dimer. It's uh, a management of you know non-high-risk PE has moved on from warfarin to NOAC. Um, but the the new thing is the reperfusion strategies now, not just thrombolysis, but we're moving into catheter-based uh, thrombolysis, uh, thrombectomy, surgical thrombectomy, and now we're talking about ECMO. Another movement is uh, evolution is a classification of the risks. So this reminds us how important it is to keep up to date with the field of medicine and uh, continue to evolve with it. The last bit is, I think, you know, back to some basics. uh, This podcast is going to be listened to by some junior doctors as well. So the basics that we have talked about earlier about a patient with large P.E., in the emergency department, things that need to be done and need to be done well, things like do a troponin, organise a echo, if possible, get a venous doppler done on these patients, use the classifications properly and call the PERP.
0: Thanks for that insight, Kevin. I think it is important to sort of remember how these things are developed, and and obviously where we're headed to, and how the interaction with research, and why this is so important in mean, keeping us up to date with some of the conversations that are um, that our physician colleagues and surgical colleagues are having for these patients in, in an inpatient sort of sort of spectrum. Thanks, everyone. That was a really robust discussion and really fascinating for me, and always makes me a bit proud to see sort of the, some of the research that we're doing locally bear out some some real fruit for our patients here. Right, everyone so we're going to um, segue into one of our interludes we have one of our emergency staff specialists um, at Westmead hospital Dr Kevin Lai who's been involved with some of the development for the hospital-based pulmonary embolism protocols and he's going to give a bit of his perspective on the nature of pulmonary embolism um, and, and give us an interlude here so uh, Dr Lai if you're happy to take it away. So
3: it won't take too long i told us they're doing an interlude about five ten minutes maximum and uh, therefore they're my opinion and mostly Evidence free. I guess I'd like to have a rant maybe on the aspects that we are discussing today, which is pulmonary embolus, the PERT team, and maybe extend that a bit further. To put a summary first, what I want to talk about is the involvement of emergency physician in the next step of medicine and extend even further into future emergency medicine. The reason I guess, you know, embarked upon a segue from PERT discussion but also I guess the least perceived current challenges within morale and you know stress within emergency medicine in our trainees and potentially consultants as well I want to give a little bit of boost and uh, I want us to look into future and see some of the initial charm and excitement of emergency medicine and that's why I chose this this field so I, I guess the first thing I want to talk about is using pert is to encourage our trainees and our consultants to extend themselves, not just within emergency medicine, which itself is a big field. You know, we're a check of all trades and, you know, we a master of the, of the field. But just like the PE team, just like the emergency physicians going next step, doing trauma or disaster medicine, when you extend yourself, when you have put yourself out there Uh, to liaise with the next step, the specialist team uh, understanding the pathology, what they do next, and have a contribution to what's the best way to manage these patients, you can broaden your horizons, your deep understanding of the pathology, creating a wider network, and at the same time, you gain that respect for yourself as an emergency physician. You know, uh, just using a bit of historical background of the per team, In 2013 and middle of the night, I got a phone call from a registrar about a young patient in cardiac arrest with high risk of PE and said, I've spoken to a respiratory physician and I know that, you know, thrombolysis is an option. I don't know the drug. I don't know the dose. Can you give it to me? And respiratory physician went, "Uh, I'm not sure. I'll look it up and call you back. The registrar then called me and I went, "Uh, yeah, but I'm not sure. I'll look it up. I'll call you back. That led me thinking about, you know, what can we do? This is a high-stake, very time-critical decision-making, and you don't carry that in the back of your mind. It does need a multidisciplinary approach um, to use the best evidence for these patients. Which then led to me involving respiratory physician, hematologist, intensivists, and we sat down together. We'll work out the first. PE thrombolysis guideline for Westmere Hospital about 2013, I think, first version of it. Time going forward, 20, I think 2015, 2016, the guideline is up to review anyway. Then Jimmy Chan called me and there was a case uh, in the hospital, which, you know again, a complex high-risk PE patient who had a very delayed management because of multi-system involvement and led to a not so good outcome. And uh, so that was a good time to review the guidelines and uh, incorporating with new evidence and the evol- evolution of management of PE. And so we set together and we involved interventional radiologists, vascular surgery, intensive care, hematology, and so on. And we embarked on another challenge in putting in a new model, which is a multidisciplinary senior consultant uh, teleconference management for high risk pe and it took 2 years uh, i think we sort of started the process in 2017 and the first perd core was made in july 2018 but it was done it was the first ever in australia and you know you you guys have all uh, once in a while been involved in the perd core i think it's a very good process in that you know really do you see in a very critical complex disease where several consultants, senior consultants with lots of experiences, concentrated together, getting all the facts together and make decisions rather than go down the registrar, go across the registrar, then go up to consultant and come back down again. So I guess what I'm trying to say over here is as emergency physicians, you don't need to, you shouldn't just limit your practice within the emergency department. What we're trying to do is for the best for the patients, and that involves the rest of the hospital, the other teams. And you can do that, and you should do that. And when you do that, you will, uh, you, as I said earlier, broaden out your horizon, deepen the understanding, get a network, and get respect for the rest of hospitals. So that's one part. I guess the other part is going forward in the future. I want our registrars and consultants to uh, look into what else we can do. You know, is it the simulation that we can get into, is it the virtual reality, telemedicine that we can get into, the public health bit, the critical care bit? I just think that, you know, it's so easy for us to look at all the challenges we have in, our, in front of us and so I'm sometimes feel a bit uh, despondent, a bit cynical about what we have done or we can achieve. And I would like to uh, see our registrars and new consultants to, to have the courage and have the energy to, to charge forward. And... Just as what you guys are doing over here in this, in this podcast, it is leading the way into the future for emergency medicine.
0: Thanks for that, Kevin. That was a, a great call to arms, I think. Oftentimes, it is, as you say, uh, overwhelming. The problems of, of our uh, specialty are put to us on a daily basis and in a, in a manner that is extremely confronting because they're eminently visible access block, uh, difficulties with communications with inpatient services. And I think what what you're saying is very true. I think having that, it's not so much as banal as having a positive outlook, but constantly looking to move forward in our ways of navigating these issues and recognizing that we do have as a specialty, an important perspective to contribute to the ongoing care of our patients. And if we keep it patient centric, I think at least personally, I can find the motivation quite easily because it can be very overwhelming. I think it's that goes without saying, um, but th- thanks for that, uh, your piece on that. It was very insightful. And I know I've taken a lot from you in that regard as a registrar, having trained under under your practice. And so I think it was good to hear you communicate that.
3: Well, I think we thanks, have a, a group of very talented passionate people. So, you know, I think we'll do okay. We'll do fine in emergency medicine. <laughs> I like to... Uh, that give that reassurance to our junior colleagues and uh, I like to pat them on the back and say go for it guys
2: thank you everyone for making it through to the end of another podcast episode with us here at Network 5 as always we would love to hear your feedback and any questions you may have you can contact us via our email westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com all the links to the papers discussed today will be available in our show notes and we encourage you to go and have a closer read of these two we look forward to being back in New Year's again soon thank you everyone I've
0: been here poor, but I have to stay where is a live eye?